Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Okay, welcome to the fourth encounter of the Bullshit Artists. We're recording on April 14th, 2021. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Crittenden. What's up, Jack? Not much, Rory. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, aside from seasonal allergies really kicked in yesterday for me in a brutal way. So I'm uh, hopeful that I don't sniffle too much during our conversation. Fully doped up, are you? Uh, yeah, I got my uh, generic Allegra pumping through me and some Afrin in my nostrils. Have you been affected yet? I know you have allergies too. Uh, yeah, I, but I don't have them severely enough to take anything. Oh, okay. So it's just, you know, stuffy. My, I lose my voice sometimes and that's, that's the extent. So it's, uh, it's pretty marginal. Gotcha. Well, good. So last time... Uh, in Did sort you of know, the by the way, sp speaking oh, of yeah. allergies... Uh, it used to be that people came out to Arizona to escape allergies. Right. And but to so sort many... of recover from tuberculosis and shit, right? Like... <laughs> yeah, right, right. yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah Doc Holliday. Right. Uh, but because so many people moved here and, and brought with them their native plants because they couldn't abide living in the desert. Yeah. So they brought the plants that reminded them of home. There was so much growth here that it brought allergies with them. So... So that's the, or, of course, invasive species, just like humans Invas shouldn't yeah. be here, you know? Yeah, the human cockroaches. <laughs> well, that's a good segue to uh, sort of pick up where we left off with the human cockroaches uh, in, the, in the kind of epilogue to our last encounter. You and I were chatting about the sort of resonance between nuclear, the threat of nuclear holocaust, nuclear planetary destruction, and um, the existential threat posed by climate breakdown. And so we can maybe explore some of those parallels as a bit of a jumping off point here and see where it takes us. And I, I guess I'll start, I had mentioned to you that a really sort of pivotal experience for me um, intellectually was occurred shortly after I moved to New York in August, 2016. This was in December, 2016. I went to that building uh, right behind you on the screen for viewers, Riverside Church, which was in my front yard at the time because I was living in the building that's pictured right behind me, uh, International House Dormitory. And Noam Chomsky was giving a lecture at Riverside Church. And during that lecture, he spoke at length about the twin existential threats that, that he saw to uh, the human species, which were the threat from nuclear war and the threat from climate change. And for him, they were deeply intertwined, interconnected, and sort of um, fed off of each other. Uh, for example, he talked about the ways in which climate change uh, increased uh, the intensity and duration of droughts in the Syrian region, which contributed to their social breakdown and, and has prolonged their civil war. Um, and also he talked about uh, 
like the threat posed, for example, by the fact that India and Pakistan are, are bordering countries, both nuclear armed, and that they are facing imminent water shortages over which they will likely fight in the near future. So, and he gave other examples. So anyway, that's sort of setting the table for some of my thinking. Um, do you have anything you wanna, wanna go with off of that? Any response to that uh, premise? I think we, or I think I mentioned uh, toward the end of the encounter, last encounter that I considered climate change to be a crisis, but nuclear weapons to be an emergency. Mm. And I say that because as you and I have talked, uh, climate change is will now result regardless of what human beings do, unless they create the geoengineering sunshade or they do blast sulfur into the air, or do some technologically crazy thing. Yes. Um, we are going to be facing centuries of just uh, horrendous climate catastrophes of various sorts. Um, those are going to, I don't want to say those are going to dribble out, but in comparison to the the possibility of nuclear winter, which could result from the exchange of, of, uh, of nuclear blasts, um, that dribbling out is not for me as catastrophic as uh, a, a nuclear war. The because you mean it, these, it wouldn't be as sudden or immediate? It, it, or what do you? Yeah, the, the effect is going to be instantaneous. So yeah. instantaneous meaning within a matter of hours, you're going to have multiple millions of people dead, uh, more people uh, dying from radiation poisoning, more people getting sick and dying from radiation poison, uh, radiation uh, illness, uh, and just in the long-term effects of a nuclear winter, which would be the uh, massive amounts of ash in the atmosphere, blocking out the sun, preventing the sun from allowing us to grow crops, creating uh, across the globe, a winter that is never ending. Mm. And so this was summarized. I think I mentioned that I had gone to a conference about this in the mid eighties or early eighties. I had written an article uh, for a journal about this. And uh, the title of my article, I think, or at least one of the headlines within the article was a summary statement by one of the scientists who attended the conference. And this, the summary statement was, the living will envy the dead. Right. I think that's what is in our future. Again, because of climate change, I don't know that it's gonna be as horrific as soon as, uh, as the nuclear winter would be from a full-scale nuclear war. That's why I say one to me is uh, a crisis and one is an emergency. The problem with both of these <laughs> is that we depend upon human judgment moving forward. Uh, and it just seems inevitable that bad things will happen. And maybe the great part about this is the great part uh, is that you fold into, you fold the emergency into the crisis. 
So we are so distracted by the crisis that's coming and that is occurring in, uh, in segments, floods, famines, fires, water wars, you were just talking about. Yep. We fold those, those things become salient so that we no longer are focused on nuclear weapons, which could be bad, and that lots of things could be going on that we're not paying attention to. But my hope is that it will take attention away from that. And, and so countries would be willing as the, cri the climate crisis continues to be willing to say, all right, let's, let's just eliminate this problem mm. and then focus on the climate. Yeah, because I think one of the things for me that distinguishes these two is that the nuclear threat is much more susceptible to being resolved or ameliorated by human action, human agency, cooperative action, right? The, the disarmament process, like that's something that, that I think is doable, at least compared to, you know, geoengineering and terraforming the planet and all that kind of stuff regarding climate change. Right. But, you know, we have seen also that that movement has been ongoing for some time and it, you know, it hasn't, uh, hasn't resulted in, in what we would like to see. The, the U.S. is now continuing to, uh, what do they call it, upgrade or update the nuclear arsenal um, despite these efforts. And I think actually an anti-nuclear group just won the Nobel Peace Prize a, a year or two ago. Not that that means much when somebody like Kissinger has won it and Obama. But there seems, there, there seems to be much more, at least establishment, um, I, I want to say will, but, but maybe that's not quite right. At least establishment awareness and the willingness to engage in some kind of disarmament theater, as opposed to, um, you know, a carbon tax or a genuine, uh, a strong government-led and global effort, cooperative effort to curb climate breakdown. You know, we talked, I think, a little bit about um, some of the international agreements like the Kyoto Protocols and, of course, the Paris Accords and a few others. But if you look at, I saw a graph recently sort of with each of those dates for the major international agreements, agreements to curb emissions correlated with the growth in emissions. And it's just, they don't make a dent. Emissions continue to go up regardless of these non-binding efforts. Um, and indeed, one of the things that has also, you know, blackened my heart to a level that I didn't think was possible um, is, was to see the, the lack of reduction of emissions during COVID. It was like 1% or something. Think about how much activity has been curbed during the past year and how resistant people were in so many ways to doing the things that caused those emissions to decline. <laughs> and then think about where we want to be versus what that produced. So that's sort of the, the hopelessness for me in the face of the climate action um, as, as opposed to nuclear weapons. But I want to touch on your point because I think you made an interesting claim. You said something like, as we realize that climate is getting worse, you know, we'll focus on those problems and maybe we'll try to uh, you know, reduce 
the nuclear arsenal and take that as an opportunity to, to be more cooperative or peaceful, something like, I, I think yeah. that's the sentiment yeah. of what you're getting at. Right. So I wonder, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if I agree or disagree with that, but I think it's worth exploring because, you know, as you have talked about many times and, and the example that you always used to give in class and maybe in some of your books too, is the plague of Athens, right? And how during that plague, the sort of quintessential virtue ethics oriented society immediately broke down into chaos and murder and all kinds of madness. So, so if we, if we accept on the one hand that planetary conditions are going to worsen and indeed we're, you know, we're enduring a plague right now, wouldn't we expect the likelihood of nuclear war and just war in general to increase rather to decrease I'm not sure. I'm just throwing that out there. What do you think? No, there's a lot to chew on. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, well, we're already seeing the panic created by uh, especially right-leaning political parties in Europe and the United States against uh, immigration. And so refugees who are, who are leaving their countries for economic reasons, climatic reasons, uh, reasons of uh, fear of violence, are creating a sense of, of panic. So people think we're being overrun. Mm. And the result of that is, as we know, is the, the rise of the right and the alt-right uh, painting immigrants as the other, scapegoating them, gaslighting, you know, all the things that we've seen happen over the last four or five or 10 years, including if we include Europe. So that's already happening. And you can imagine as the panic increases, it's not going to decrease because the problems with immigration and refugees is not going to do decrease. This is only going to be exacerbated as, as the climate gets worse, because as the climate gets worse and the economics in these regions get worse, and then the violence escalates, and then the sense of despair increases, people are willing then to cross deserts and mountains uh, in order to seek what they think is shelter or safety or a better way of life, whatever it is they're, they're, fl they're fleeing from and heading toward. So yes, I can imagine things are going to get worse and are going to be bleak. Would that... Uh, I, I don't know. You, you might be right. If you, if you take the example you gave of, of India and Pakistan, both are nuclear powers. I can with imagine historic that, enmity, you know. Yeah. With, yes, with a, a history of, of enmity and, uh, and bad blood, with a history of some violence, then you can imagine if water, which is essential for human living, becomes a commodity a scarce commodity that they'd be willing to certainly become violent to try to protect or gain water. Now, are they stupid enough to think that if we then have a nuclear exchange, somehow that will make things better? Uh, <laughs> I, I, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At well, that then... point, I don't think, I don't think reason, reason becomes the, the uh, modus operandi. Right. That's what I was going to say is, is uh, it's not a rational calculus, probably, if we reach that uh, level of, of despair. 
So no, I mean, but you can imagine. I mean, it if if water becomes a uh, becomes scarce, we know in, in Arizona it's become a problem. Right. I don't know if you've been following the stories in Arizona, but the yeah Lake Mead, which is which was created uh, when the humor the humor when the Hoover Dam was built. Lake Mead is now, I think, at 40% capacity. It's what yeah. the lowest maybe it's ever been. Meanwhile, the Colorado River uh, is shrinking. So the two main sources of water for Arizona are now in jeopardy. Yes. Okay, what, what will, will we now fight with Colorado and, and Utah? Will we now fight with Mexico about, about water? I, I can imagine. I can imagine that becomes uh, a point, but but Arizona may become uninhabitable over yeah. the next ten years. I don't know what the what the date would be, and then at that point, what do you have? You have a mass uh, exodus from the state into other states, and then they resent that because now that puts strain on their resources. I I, I don't know. I I you know I just come back to Cormac McCarthy in the end of the road. Uh, but that was a nuclear, I think that was a nuclear problem. But here, here's my problem with the nuclear issue. I'm with you on the idea that, that human beings can make agreements and treaties such as the SALT Treaty uh, and stick to them, that we can reduce our nuclear stockpiles, which on one level is just absurd because we're talking about thousands of weapons, which we don't need to destroy the planet and our species. No, we need um, maybe 10% of what we have to, for yeah, total exactly. planetary destruction. Yeah, ten, so ten percent. But of course, we we think that the greater the number, the the, the higher our safety. But my concern is is just human error. Yes, we have ongoing human error with with the climate problem. As you were pointing out, we continue to spew carbon dioxide into the atmosphere relentlessly, and we understand that there are countries who use, I think, this false claim that they have to go through the same periods of economic growth that we went through and in the same way in order for them to achieve some level of well-being for their people. Right. India and China need to burn coal. Well, I just think that's preposterous. And I think China is coming around to, to seeing that that's preposterous. So I don't know that that holds. But we'll continue to make short-term decisions, the decisions in the short term, uh, that benefit us, if not immediately, then in the short term, and just jettison any long-term concern about the, the nature, the health of the planet, and therefore the health of the of the species on the planet. Yeah, but I don't see this as as human error. I mean, I see I see it as catastrophic human error in the long sense that we're not paying attention. But but in with nuclear weapons, it is that fifteen minute misjudgment that can lead to full-scale nuclear war. And we had an example of that. I don't know if, I think it occurred in uh, the mid to late 1970s when a Russian lower level officer was looking at the grid on the, on the uh, radar. I'm not sure it was radar, what the system was he was, he was looking at. And he saw that there were multiple nuclear weapons in air headed towards cities in Russia. Right. Now the response should be, my God, we're under attack. 
Therefore, we must retaliate. Before those weapons take out our weapon systems, we must retaliate. And so then they would press the button and launch their own full-scale nuclear attack as a counterattack to what the United States had launched. And that's exactly what it looked like. But for reasons that I don't understand, and maybe this person, this Russian officer doesn't understand, he decided, no, there must be something wrong here. This has got to be a glitch. This can't really be happening. And he took it as a mistake and did not launch the weapons. And it turned out it was a glitch. Yes. I'm, but I'm, that was, what, five, ten minutes from full-scale nuclear war. Yep. And it rests on the shoulders of literally an individual person who, as you say, was not particularly high ranking or really authorized to, to be making that kind of decision. Not that that matters to you and I, but thinking of the command structure and of both of these uh, right. superpowers, you know, it's astonishing. And in fact, I uh, should win the Nobel Peace Prize. I know. And his name is not known uh, by anyone, you know. But Chomsky mentioned that case. In fact, I have, uh, I happen to have the book here, Internationalism, Internationalism or Extinction is the, is the transcription of that lecture. <clears throat> um, and he, I think, added a little bit to it, the lecture that I heard him give at Riverside Church. And he talks about that example. And he also talks about a handful of others. There were similar examples. There were multiple examples on the Russian side and one that he gives on the American side of basically the, the exact same thing you just described. Um, uh, almost split second, five, 10, 15 minute uh, scenarios where decisions had to be made not to launch missiles, yeah. even though it looked yeah. like they should. And there's yeah. one example where the, I think it was, a, it might've been the guy you were just talking about or a different Soviet who did actually disobeyed his superior officers in refusing to launch the missiles, which I find interesting given, you know, um, what we both are interested in regarding moral development and obedience. Um, that's like the, well, that's the limit he case, should, he right? Should, he should be court-martialed. He should <laughs> yeah, be court-martialed and then, and then probably executed. Yeah, of course. Yes. Well, so, there was one case in the United States, I'm not gonna be able to reconstruct this, so maybe a listener or a viewer will know this case, mm. uh, where, some repairs were uh, were going on in one of the land-based nuclear silos in Nebraska or Kansas or some windswept, desolate place in the United States, Midwest. <laughs> and uh, the people doing the repairs, somebody dropped a wrench down. They were up the top of the, of the weapon, I think, and dropped a wrench. It, it punctured something. Oh but set off a set off some kind of alarm system where where it to save the missile something like this that had to launch it and it was a, like a multiple warhead multi-warhead missile jesus christ it, yeah it was i can't remember how they shut it down how they stopped it but it was just bizarre just <laughs> dropping a wrench right uh, well that yeah. speaks you know you mentioned like human error and judgment and things like this and i can't help I can't help but notice something of a parallel between the example you just gave and this recent example of this police shooting near Minneapolis where the woman claims she mistook her gun for a taser, right? Like that's an impossible error to make. Uh, you know, a Glock or whatever she was carrying is much heavier, made of metal, 
uh, feels completely different in your hand is located on the opposite side of the police utility belt, et cetera, et cetera. And here she is claiming, oh, I thought I thought I had my plastic four ounce, uh, you know, rectangular taser in my hand. And this woman was like a 25 year veteran of the force that just sort of popped into my head as a parallel or a, um, a similar uh, case where it's like human judgment and human error when it comes to the use of force in lethal yeah. force. Yeah. We just shouldn't have weapons, really. We shouldn't. That's right. well, that's, we haven't that's, earned the right, you know. That's one of the arguments, remove weapons from police officers. Yeah. Uh, keep the police officers, remove the weapons. Uh, th- there is There is something frightening about allowing the fate of the planet and the species to rest on immediate the necessity of immediate human judgment. Mm. And, and for some reason, the misjudgments, let me back up. I don't believe that there are misjudgments about the human contribution to climate change. And I say they're not misjudgments because we know from internal documents that ExxonMobil has known for decades. Yeah, that arguably since do, the 50s. Yeah, since the 50s. Uh, Certainly what they've the been doing has been harming the planet, that it would have negative consequences. So it's not that they have misjudged anything. They are simply liars right. in order to continue profiting through... Uh, the sale of fossil fuels, they're willing to risk climate change and the, and the catastrophic results that may ensue and will ensue in order to make money. Right. Okay, so that's not a misjudgment. That's not a miscalculation. <laughs> They've done the calculations. They know what the outcome is gonna be. They just right. refuse to adhere to what is rational and sensible. Yes. Now, in the terms of the, of the misjudgment of the officer, that, is it the question arises? Is it a misjudgment? Yeah. Now there is a possibility that she wanted to shoot this guy. So you think because, it's a lie or an excuse rather than a, well, a misjudgment? I, I would I agree. To, I think she is full of shit, but I don't know. What yeah. <laughs> so so I don't think it was a mistake, and I don't think it was a misjudgment. But let, let me let me try to to offer some explanation on her sure. behalf. This comes from. Uh, Debbie Campbell. Okay. Do you know her? Do you know Debbie? Uh, a little bit. She was a, she did her PhD at ASU, right? And she kind of, she co-wrote uh, your direct deliberative democracy book. Yeah. She, she wrote the book, uh, co-wrote the book, direct deliberative democracy with me was a, like Rory was a student of mine. Uh, she was a PhD student and, uh, and teaches, it's just retired, I think, from teaching at uh, Mesa Community College. But anyway, mm. she offered an explanation. This is from her. I would not be so bold as to <laughs> offer this on my own. Sure. She claims that women of a certain age go through menopausal changes. When those hormones shift and they can shift dramatically, those changes can result in lethargy, brain fog, mm. and other kinds of of cognitive debilitations. So Debbie was floating the uh, possibility that this woman who is Rory pointed out was a 26 year veteran on the police force 
may have been in the throes of some sort of menopausal episode. <laughs> Would we That's, call that hysteria? <laughs> you know that uh, you might call it hysteria. I, I'm, I'm staying being, away from that. Term. Yeah, I'm being facetious because yeah. I'm willing to entertain that hypothesis. But if any, certainly if any man put that forth and you're right to, to throw it on Debbie's shoulders. It uh, comes from her, it doesn't come from me. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, it would be ludicrous. It, but it, it flies in the face of all of the training. And let's leave aside the training that this police officer received. As you pointed out, she has to forget that her weapon is holstered on her right side mm-hmm. or it, it's holstered on the, on your, on the officer's uh, dominant hand side. So it's if you're left-handed, it's on your left side. If you're right-handed, it's on your right side. But clearly she knew 20, I don't know how long tasers have been in effect in the, on the police force, 20 years, 30 years, her whole career. Right, close to it. So she knows from years of experience that it's on the opposite side from your weapon. Plus I think gun. she was a trainer. Like she trained other and officers. She was in the car. In order to, as a, as a supervising officer. Yeah. So she has a reputation, at least, of being able to make some judgments through her experience. So how do we explain this? That she, as you said, she reaches for a weapon on the side opposite the taser, doesn't recognize the change in weight because she is fearful because this young man is trying to get in his car, not reaching for anything. And she thinks she's pulled her taser and yelling, tase, tase, I'll tase you, I'll tase you, whatever the hell she yelled, and then shoots him. So, oh my God, or oh shit, I shot him. Right. I just think that it is, it stretches credulity to believe that this was a mistake, a series of mistakes. Yes. I completely agree. I would go so far as to say that it's an insult to our intelligence for her to proffer such an excuse. It's pathetic. She and would be better off saying, you know, what's that? Yeah. And, and to have it perpetuated by the chief of police. Right. And, and others. Yes. Yeah, uh, she, she would be better she, off claiming, you know, the hand of God guided her or something like just a, a, a ludicrous supernatural excuse. Well, in my view or or i'm menopausal (laughs) i i'm menopausal and i i had brain fog and i don't know what i was doing but even if that's true which i which again i'm willing to entertain that and that may be a perfectly viable or like that may be a legitimate thing that occurs for women i don't know enough about about the effects of menopause but if that's the case then she should be aware of that and have taken a leave of absence you know, my, well, I have a medical condition that's clouding my judgment. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that it, that it, that it necessarily heads in that direction. Yeah. So in other words, she might have had an episode. I'm, I'm just making this up. I don't know anything about going through menopause. Sure. I, I haven't gotten there yet. Um, <laughs> Next time. I, 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 let's say it was episodic and it was stress that brought it out, that brought on the episode. And she had not been in a situation that was that highly stressful. Maybe mm. she did, doesn't go on the road very often. She was doing this as a training exercise on behalf of these newer recruits. Okay. I, I can imagine all of that being the case. What I don't understand is when you've pulled your Glock, you, you confuse it for your taser. 
right? She's saying, I'll tase you, I'll tase you. She has the weapon in her hand. She does not recognize the difference. Right. Uh, that, that, that seems to me to be a complete stretch. Uh, it, plus she was with other officers she, and she was not under threat. No. She couldn't back out of there and say, uh, I, I pulled my weapon, use your taser. I don't know what, what the hell she's supposed to say, but it just seems to me that even if it's episodic, uh, it can't be it unless she just blacks out, in which case, yes, she should resign immediately, which she did. Right. Um, and she should be evaluated. Well, she's been charged now with second degree murder. So I think manslaughter. She will be. But uh, oh, man, is it manslaughter? I think so. Which was sort okay. of like the lowest charge she could get hit with, you know, which is better than nothing. If this was five years ago, it'd be nothing. You know, she'd probably get a promotion. Yeah. But, well, it's going to be it's going to be tough, though. I mean, the thin blue line has been crossed uh, yes. in Minnesota. So yeah, this, this will be interesting. Minnesota, like everything. It's an interesting, uh, you know, I think of that example or that quote. I don't know if it was Jefferson or or who said this about the, the states being laboratories of democracy, um, because th- there's been so much going on with police violence in Minnesota and we're seeing political changes there that have the potential perhaps to sort of lead the way around the country, hopefully, in my view. So, you know, there's, there's right now there's the trial going on for Derek Chauvin, uh, the guy who murdered George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for 10 minutes. Um, and in the midst of that trial, this killing occurs, which is the exact same, <laughs> exact same thing. You know, wh- a white cop murdering a black man who was nonviolent. And there have been some political measures, efforts by the Minneapolis City Council, I think, to defund the police, um, to reallocate funding away from the police and towards social services, et cetera. And so if this comes to fruition, if these policies come to fruition and they result in significant changes for the good regarding policing in Minnesota, then perhaps we'll see those changes copied across the country. I'm not super optimistic about that, but, you know, maybe. And so I guess I'm just wondering, I guess, what do you, what do you make of that idea of defunding the police in that manner? And also maybe we can talk about just disarming the police, which you mentioned and which most European countries, for example, already do. Uh, disarming into the sense of guns uh, for, for like right. beat cops, you know, they just have uh, billy clubs or whatever. What do you make of that? Do you think, do you think that's a good approach or am I on, on target here with Minneapolis or Minnesota undergoing these changes? Well, I understand the the uh, the political desire to defund the police, and I understand that it cuts two ways. Uh, on the one hand, it it says to people, policing is in some senses out of control. But on the other hand, people say, yes, it cuts the opposite way, which is to say, well, now you want to take. You want to lessen the amount of money given to police forces when the very thing we may need uh, is increased policing, but of a different sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 
You know, I, 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 I have no uh, thought out solution to this. So now I'm just spinning. <laughs> that's fair. And I don't the, have, I, I was yeah, hoping we could maybe think through it together because I don't yeah, have a super strong position either, other than that I do support the idea of, of decreasing the size and reversing the militarization of police forces. Yes. Okay. You and I can begin with that notion, demilitarizing the police. Mm. And we, we know that the Pentagon has pushed police forces to buy weapons and sometimes weapons are donated to police forces because they've got stockpiles of weapons, they've got stockpiles of armored vehicles. Uh, and commentators have, have said pretty clearly that when you look at the responses by the police to protests, it looks like an, an occupying force. Right coming in. It looks like an army. It does not look like policing. Check out the videos of the Democratic National Convention meeting in Chicago in 1968. Yep. I guess I think you can see some of that footage in the trial of the Chicago 7, I think. But if you look at, at the real footage, these are police officers are you know, they've got helmets. I don't even think they have face shields. I don't remember. And they've got billy clubs, as you suggested. Uh, and they're beating the shit out of protesters. People like me at the time. Right. Uh, but they're not shooting people. I don't remember anybody being shot and killed. People may have been killed, but they don't think they were shot and killed. Uh, I don't want I don't know if there was a reluctance by police at the time to use to fire their weapons. It doesn't seem to be much reluctance now. No. Uh, particularly where people of color are concerned. Okay, but now we're getting off the subject. Well, maybe we aren't. All right, so, so you and I agree, demilitarize the police. That would be a start. Uh, now, do we de-weaponize the police? Do we take away their weapons? America, because of our sense of exceptionalism, which may become a theme in several of our encounters as we go forward. Yeah, right. Uh, seems loath and perhaps even unable to learn lessons from other countries. We're different. We're exceptional. We can't do that. No, no, we don't care that they don't carry, the police don't carry guns in France and Germany and England. Those are different countries. They have royal families. We don't do that. We carry guns. We're all royal. I don't know, whatever the people think. Um, yeah, the castle doctrine, right? You know, my home, my the castle. castle doctrine, right? Yeah. Uh, so there ought to be experiments. What what I maybe you and I agree on would be let's have a grand scheme of experiments across the country trying different forms of policing, more community policing, more beat cops, where you walk the neighborhood mm. without a gun. Maybe we don't use uh, armed police on any traffic offense. The traffic stops are by the equivalent of meter maids in better cars. Right, um, right. I think that's a great start, something like that. Something Why like do we that. have state troopers pulling over, you know, people speeding uh, to shoot them in the head when they reach for their license? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And let's say that you've stopped a, a fleeing felon. Uh, you're a, a meter maid in a 
a souped up car so you can keep up with the speeder, pull somebody over and want to give this person a speeding ticket, this fleeing felon floors it and roars off. Call it in. Okay, now at this point, you have somebody fleeing. All right, now maybe you get the state police involved at that point. At that point. Right. Not before. Uh, yeah, so the, let me just jump to the defunding idea. Sure. There, in some circles, and I think it's mostly uh, among Democrats, and perhaps even progressive Democrats, there is the argument that the phrase defund the police led to defeats down ballot because people uh, don't accept that idea. And they, the, the Republicans painted that as a liberal slash progressive slash democratic idea, then therefore candidates lost. I haven't seen any data showing that that's the case. So I don't know whether that's the case, but it, it uh, strikes me as plausible, but I, I haven't seen any data. Um, the problem I have with the defunding phrase is that I actually think police are underpaid. Mm. And because they're underpaid, they are uh, on the border of be <laughs> I hope police aren't listening to this. They're on <laughs> oh, the they're border definitely of li be listening. Everything <laughs> yeah, I do, right. they listen to it. Trust me. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, now I'm now I'm sucked into your the, the vortex of horror that awaits you. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, my view is that they're underpaid because they're underpaid. They are barely a professional class. They're barely a professional occupation. Um, but I think they're grossly underpaid. I think the rank and file police need need a pay increase. So defunding, I, I know what it's after. It's it's look take money from where police are now spending a lot of their money. They're not spending on the rank and file. They're spending on weaponry and on administration and I don't know what else. And rearrange it, reimagine policing. And so we were, we were headed in that, you and I were headed in that direction with the idea about beat cops, walking the beat in the neighborhood, more community policing. Um, maybe you take away weapons, maybe they have a taser, you experiment and they have a taser and no gun no no revolver right i don't know what what are your thoughts i think yeah i mean i think i, I certainly agree like the demilitarization and uh the reimagining of police would definitely be a good start and and maybe a plausible or practical start given you know the reality of this country and especially the you know i think it's important to hold in mind the degree to which this is a deeply violent country all around. It's not, it's not like the police are the only ones that are violent in this country, although they are, in my view, probably the most violent group. Uh, but I mean, there's, there's what? There's like three guns for every adult in the United States. So gun ownership rates are extraordinarily high. Uh, and so we can't, I don't think we can talk about abolishing or defunding the police without simultaneously working to address the prevalence of guns and gun violence amongst the citizenry, because there's been almost a um, sort of tit for tat. It's like, well, we didn't ban assault weapons or, or rather 
you know, first assault weapons were made available to citizens for purchase, then we failed to ban them. And so citizens have these guns, police feel that they need to have bigger guns and greater armor and whatever. And so one, one hand shakes the other in that sense. But what I would like to see first, well, let me first address your point about properly compensating police officers. I agree with you on that point. I think it's a good one that's not talked about often, which is that, and there's a corollary, I think, amongst citizens, and it harkens back to some of what we talked about, uh, I think, last encounter, which is that if, if people are provided with the resources to satisfy their basic needs, then they'll be less prone to violence or, crimi- or, or what we classify as criminal activity. So uh, impoverished classes of people, especially, you know, oppressed minorities in urban settings, for example, will probably be less prone to engaging in crime and violent crime if they have their basic needs met. And by the same token, so too might police officers be less agitated, less, you know, prone to violence, et cetera, if they feel more secure in their persons, generally speaking. But what I would like to see, if I had my way, is, is, yeah, the true defunding and abolition of the police, which is not to say that it couldn't be replaced, that, that th- their purpose could not be replaced by some other institutional entity. But my understanding of the history of policing in this country is that it, it sort of, it was it grew out of the enforcement of, you know, f- the Fugitive Slave Act, basically. Like it, it grew out of this inherently white supremacist um, approach to uh, sort of violently controlling black people in America. And so for me, it's all fruit from, from the poison tree at that point. And we have to, we would have to wipe it away entirely and, and come up with something else. And which I think unarmed traffic officers, if we wanna use that term, would be an example. Uh, the, uh, an increased amount of social workers, uh, you know, like for example, in New York City, when I was living there, and, and this is still the case and even more so the case since COVID hit, uh, there's an enormous homelessness problem. Many homeless, have nowhere to go other than on the subways or in the subway stations. At some point, they cause some kind of issue. Someone gets annoyed with them. Cops come in, bust their heads and kick them out, take them either to the tombs, which is the Manhattan jail under underground, horrible place, or uh, just drop them off you know, somewhere else on the street or maybe a shelter if they're really lucky. Well, why is that the case? Why could it not be rather that we fund a robust organization of, I'm just gonna call them social workers, but we can imagine other professions and roles under this umbrella to actually solve the problem instead of just inflict violence upon these people. So do you get the drift of where I'm headed with that? Like, I think we can solve these problems so many things that we take to be policing problems are in fact not policing problems, but because of the history of this country, the system of political organization, 
and our fucked up values, and I use that term loosely, values, <laughs> instead, we just crack skulls. That's, you know, every, everything looks like a nail when all you have is a hammer. We just crack skulls. That's what we do. So what do you think? Is that, do you think that's plausible or do you think that's too pie in the sky? Well, it's more than plausible. Uh, it is uh, realistic and practical. <laughs> so it'll never happen <laughs> Probably in this not. country. But it, yeah. as you know, from reading what hath Trump wrought, right. I traced almost all the problems in our contemporary society back to Ronald Reagan. It Correct. was Reagan who shut down the, really the healthcare system in this country, the public health system. It was Reagan who shut that down. He emptied uh, health facilities, just emptied people onto the streets. Well, if you eliminate the public health system and you diminish it, greatly, who, who picks up the slack? Well, the slack was picked up by the police. Th they are not equipped uh, cognitively, emotionally, psychologically, or physically to deal with people who have mental health issues. They don't want to do it. And so they end up doing, applying their training, which from that perspective is minimal in far, as far as helping people with mental health problems. We need to reinvigorate that public sector and your idea about social work, mental health care workers, uh, increasing that dramatically is a step in the right direction. And there are places that are doing this. I think one is uh, Portland, Oregon, mm. where they are sending, when there are domestic disputes, they send out maybe with police or in place of police, I don't really know, um, mental health workers. You know, police are no more capable of of interceding in a domestic dispute than they are in dealing with the homeless, as you pointed out. They're not, they're it, not trained to do it. And in fact, they, you know, there's the statistic that 40% of, of police officers are themselves domestic abusers. So not exactly the, the, the person you want trying to help which, <laughs> sort which, out a domestic dispute. Is another point the, the training has got to be inadequate is a kind way to put it. The, you have to do much more psychological screening of people who are, who are applying and entering the police academy. And then once there, there has to be an emphasis on, on a de-escalation of situations. And we seem to be doing the opposite. It's almost as if people are looking for an excuse, but you to, to, to harm someone physically. Yes. So there are there are clear avenues we're talking about here that I think could be undertaken. And if that's what defunding means, if it means rearranging funding or shifting funding, then I think that's that's completely good. Now your your position goes goes further, and that is abolishing the police altogether. Mm. And there is a movement, uh, the ACAB movement. All cops, All cops are bastards. Are bastards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is that I there is agree. no good police officer, and and uh, I, I can understand the feeling why that exists. I'll give you an example. Mm. If you are in a police force with twelve hundred people, and one of those people 
has, uh, I was gonna say taken bribes, but that's so almost insignificant in today's climate. But let's say someone has um, abused a prisoner, has arrested somebody, uh, beaten them up, put them in the back of the car, smacked them around in the cell, and maybe even killed them. And you know about this. You know that you've, there's a dirty cop in your precinct. You've got, you know, there are 1,199 of you. And there's this one bad cop. If you don't turn on that cop, you now have a precinct of 1,200 bad cops. Right. I mean, this, this, this is the problem. So, that, so then we, we're compounding it by... I don't want to be a rat. I don't want to be a snitch. I'm not going to turn on my, my brothers and sisters in the police force. There's that whole mindset to deal with. So where do we begin? Well, we don't begin anywhere. We begin everywhere. Right. So it has to involve better training, has to involve better screening of candidates. It has to involve demilitarizing the police and maybe de-weaponizing the police. It has to involve giving, getting police out in the community to know their neighborhoods. Um, now, are those sufficient for you that you would move off a position of abolishing the police altogether? And, and I don't know, so I'm going to turn it to you and ask you, do you see the police as an effective force in any way? Mm. Not really. Um, I mean... First, I, let me just agree with what you, you said about uh, one bad police officer uh, sort of spoiling the others. I think that's exactly exactly right. If those officers cover up or whatever, decline to um, turn over the police officer that's been abusing his or her power, then they obviously become complicit with that and are therefore bad cops themselves. So it's the role in my view, that is inherently flawed and problematic because police, regardless of what they may have been originally, they have certainly become, you know, it's a state-sanctioned gang. The state has the monopoly on violence, we know that. And so the police are the apparatus that inflicts that violence domestically through organizations that resemble and indeed contain within them in many cases gangs right so there's the systemic problem of policing generally but then there are overt white supremacist sort of Aryan brotherhood types that are that form gangs it's like a gang within a gang and the FBI which is also a fucking gang and a white supremacist one at that has been investigating this for a long time they've issued reports going back at least 10 years that there was a white supremacy, a white supremacist gang problem within American uh, policing. So that's why that's one of the reasons why I say it, it drive them all into the sea. It, it has to be wiped clean. But you asked about whether there's whether I think there's sort of any good purpose or role that the police play. And I think I think at least in theory, there is or can be. I think, I think we would both agree that violence is a permanent feature of human 
the human experience. And so there will always be, or at least there has always been and likely will always be uh, persons who seek to harm others and that therefore those situations and citizens could benefit from the existence of a third party that has the sort of, you know, imprimatur of the government to, to, to protect them. But it, it, those cases are vanishingly small. You know, think about the whole good guy with a gun hypothesis regarding school shootings, for example. That, that almost never comes to pass, right? The police almost never, no one rolls in there like Rambo to save everyone. And in fact, as it exists right now, the cops sort of pat these mass shooters on the head, take them to Burger King, as they literally did in the case of one of these mass shooters, the guy from Colorado, I think, took him to Burger King before they took him to jail. And at the same time, uh, you know, unarmed black citizens are being shot dead in their vehicles. So although I, I do think there could be a place for armed, some armed agents of the state, although not the state as presently constituted, there could be a place, a good place for those in our society. As it exists right now, I see no, virtually no benefit from policing. Maybe you can think of one to throw at me, but, but I can't, I can't think of any. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's tough being <clears throat> white and saying, no, rephrase that. It's easy being white and saying, well, I like having the police around. Mm. If somebody, somebody breaks into my home uh, or harasses my wife, I like to be able to call the police. And I can imagine circumstances under which that is true for more than just white people. You would hope it would be true all the time. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's such, it is such a, uh, a pervasive issue I mean, this, we, we talked about disarming the police. And you can point to England and Germany and France, but not, none of those countries has the gun problems that we have. None of those countries has the gun violence that we have. None of those countries has the gun culture that we have. And as a result, you, you can't you can't disarm them. So then you think of some way that it makes it more difficult for them to use their weapons. Uh, they, you know, they have to load them on site. They have to get them in, in the back of their vehicle. But of course, you know that they would just, that, that wouldn't work. The cops would load the guns as soon as they got into the car and they'd take the shotguns out of the back of the vehicle as soon as they got in the car. Right, so, just like they turn their body cameras off. You know. Just to turn the body cameras off. I, so it, it comes back to making it a professional organization where you are concerned about limiting their role, narrowing down what they do, uh, and using other agencies where necessary. You know, the history of the police, you may be right. I don't know the history of policing. And so it may be that it was, 
it was because of <laughs> Fido has joined the chat. Yeah, sorry. I, I could I could mute it, but it's part of the background. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, so I don't know the history. You might be completely right about that. I have no reason to think that you're not. Uh, we know certainly that's where the Second Amendment comes from. It's the same idea. So uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it could be done, if there can be some adequate system, if you have neighborhood watch networks that mm. would protect your home if somebody broke in, if, that, if that's feasible, uh, that you rely upon fellow citizens uh, instead of, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. There, well, there that... is an issue. There, I was just going to say, it, 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 this expands out into, into another issue, which is mm. the kind of people who are attracted to, to the police. Right. Bullies but, and people that were bullied. <laughs> yeah, which is just about everybody. <laughs> but there's something about, yeah, there's something about, as you said, participating in the monopoly of violence that is attractive to some people. Yes. Uh, the, being able to, to have the authority to use violence, to throw your weight around, to intimidate others. That's why I said, I think psychological profiling is uh, really important. Mm. Uh, but maybe people come in with the right psychological attitudes and with the, with psychological tools, but then are corrupted by the, by the culture. And that's right. perfectly possible too. Then you have to root out the culture. You have to, so what we're talking about is uprooting the police. Imagine that it's a crop. You've got to uproot it, plow the field again and plant different kinds of seeds, get a different kind of crop. I, you know, I, yes. I don't know. I like but that image is, of uprooting actually. What were you going to say? It, oh, oh okay. I was just going to say that it leads to people who, I, I would, you know, I don't have data on any of this, right? <laughs> so I don't honestly know how many unarmed white males are killed each year by the police. I have no idea. Yeah. And I don't know if we're, if we are highlighting the shootings of unarmed black males when we're ignoring uh, shootings of unarmed whites. I, I just don't know. Maybe that you say, well, there is, I, there, I'm hoping there's data on that. I just don't know what it is. Mm. Uh, but it just looks like the way it's portrayed in the media, it looks like an epidemic of black men being murdered mm. and black people being murdered when they are in what appear to be pretty lukewarm circumstances. The woman who was pulled over on the road and then arrested and died in her prison cell. Uh, what the yes. hell, what the hell happened there? Uh, a... Yeah. So I, I, so I, I, I don't know. So I don't really know what I'm talking about. I should stop <laughs> talking because I don't know what I'm talking about, but there is also something where I wanted to head with this. Yeah. Was the, the lure of authoritarianism. The desire to be part of a force that will inflict certain values on others. You know, if, if it's true, if there is another epidemic going on, 
as you described it, of cadres of white supremacists within not just the police, but the military. Yeah. I want to know how widespread it is. I think you said 40%. Uh, That was for domestic abusers. The rate of domestic Domestic abusers. Okay. Okay. Yeah, is is for is forty percent. That's the last study that I saw, which I think is something that's not highlighted <laughs> enough either in this discourse. But it's it's a way for people who have uh, authoritarian tendencies to gain legitimate use of violence. Yes. So I'm not surprised. So then I'd like to say, okay, what's the percentage of people who are who lean authoritarian on some scale? Right. And you can, whatever that percentage is, you can then imagine some large number of those people are going to be attracted to the military or policing uh, or militias. But again, I think it comes back to two issues. One, our, our gun culture. And that, I think, is underscored by some kind of perversion of uh, American exceptionalism and individualism, mm-hmm. which are which are values uh, that I think on the surface and even if you dig down have a tremendous value, but as with anything can be corrupted and uh, sullied. Yeah, I, I mean, we are. I agree. I, like, I think you can trace it the whole way down to the root. And that's why I liked that uh, uprooting image that you gave. And so I had mentioned my understanding or recollection of the history of modern policing going back to essentially, um, you know, the, the idea of returning property to slave owners, right? Um, but it, it goes much deeper than that, because if we look at our founding documents, which have created or contributed to the sort of civil religion, you know, that we have, what do we find? We find in the Declaration of Independence references to the merciless Indian savages, which of course the American colonists essentially exterminated through uh, germ warfare and uh, and just regular warfare, genocidal behavior. And then in the Constitution, of course, you know the Three Fifths Compromise and all this kind of stuff. We have the existence of a a codified existence of an underclass who are, you know, legally dehumanized and treated as, as objects, as property. And so, so this country is founded on violence towards everyone that's not white and really everyone who's not white men and really everyone who's not rich white men. So, that, so for me, then the, the issue to address all these becomes reconstitution, outright reconstitution, which I know you, re- you wrote on in, in What Hath Trump Brought, although not necessarily from this angle, but it is, that is a topic that I wanted to get into with you at some point. But I also wanted to back up and address, at least quickly address two points that you made. One is the alternative to policing being something like community policing, neighborhood watch, right? That's, that's an approach that I often find floated by various socialists and socialist groups. The idea that we should have, um, you know, people from the neighborhoods, not agents of the state who actually know the other people in the neighborhoods 
do, uh, assuming the role of what we would call policing. There may be some promise in that. I don't think, I don't know that it could work under present sort of economic and material circumstances in the United States, except maybe in some communities it might, I don't know. But, so I just wanted to mention that. But then also like you raised this point about the, uh, the, the authoritarian impulse for people that are attracted to policing. And I, I think that's really important. And it reminded me of that line from the Republic which I don't remember exactly, but Plato says something like, you know, the, the people who most want to rule are least fit to rule. And I think we could apply that to cops too. The people who most want to be cops should are, are least qualified to be cops and should be disallowed from becoming cops, you know, in this ideal world that we're creating because it gives them this shield to act out on their violent authoritarian impulses with impunity. And indeed, you know, they continue, they have this legal doctrine of qualified immunity, right? Which I think, I think New York may have just repealed or they're working on repealing. Somewhere I saw a headline, major American city is working to repeal or eliminate qualified immunity for police officers, which if people listening don't know what qualified immunity is, it basically means that cops can do whatever the fuck they want and not get in trouble for it, including, you know, killing and beating people, use of excessive force, et cetera. Um, but where did I, where did I want to go with this? Yeah. Oh, this, um, the authoritarian nature. I would, I'm reminded of this other example that was in the news just recently, which you may have seen of the military uh, enlisted uh, guy. He was in fatigues, a black man, who was pulled over right. for, yeah, did you see this? Yeah, for a traffic yeah. violation. Yeah. And uh, he was cooperative, I would say, but not necessarily compliant immediately. He was being told to get out of the vehicle. And I think for good reason, he refused because my hunch is that he suspected he would be shot if he was seen sort of reaching for his seatbelt. It would be a, a pretense, pretext for shooting him because he was reaching for a gun, quote unquote. So instead he holds his hands up and uh, is trying to communicate with and de-escalate the situation. And this connects with something I wanted to mention earlier. But before I get to that, the cop who's interacting with him, this army guy is shouting at him to obey, right? And you can just tell that that is what's driving this cop. He wants the person to obey unquestioningly and immediately. And, and that's a, to me, that's a violent impulse in and of itself, not unlike the impulse to punishment, right? What does Nietzsche say? Beware, beware those who uh, hold the impulse to punish or something. But, but then relatedly, uh, so he wants, he wants him to obey and he visits violence upon him when he, when he does not immediately obey. And here you have this individual who's a, who's a soldier, probably has superior training to the officer, and he is forced to de-escalate the situation. The cop is escalating, right? And this is the inversion that I see that perhaps more than anything else sa says to me that 
policing is fundamentally flawed institution in this country at this point in history is that police almost without fail are the instigators, the agitators and the escalators. They bring the violence to the situations. They don't de-escalate or quell the violence. They increase it. And now the onus is on unarmed citizens at the point of a gun, right? They're at, under duress and they have to somehow pacify these maniacs. Do you get what I'm saying? In the face, you know, when, when it should yeah. be the other way around. So there's been this complete inversion of how the interaction or the relationship is supposed to be in my view. And I don't, I don't see any coming back from that at this point. I don't think any reform, any amount of reform can fix that. Well, here, here, I think you and I part ways a little bit, because <clears throat> as I say, I, I, I'm not yet at a position where I can make an argument for abolishing the police. I am in the position where I want a complete overhaul of the justice system, starting with the police. But here I, I'm, I guess, falling back on this position I stated earlier about increasing the quality of the screening of people who are currently on the forces and who are candidates for the police academy. So that I think would help identify some of these uh, authoritarian leaning folks, people who want an excuse to use violence. I don't believe that it, it should be effective enough that you, you can identify uh, these kinds of characters. So that's a beginning. I mean, all the things we've talked about, I think are worth, worth holding in mind including the idea of limiting police presence in some communities. But, here, but here's an issue, uh, two examples jumped to mind when we were talking about this or when you were just talking about it. Uh, when I was a college student, we would often go into the North End of Boston. The North End of Boston is uh, an Italian section of, of Boston. You know, like almost every city, Boston has its, its ethnic enclaves and the North End was one of them. And there was a place there where we went to called the, the Venetian Palace or something like that. Polizia, Polizia, Polizia Venezia, something like that. But we went there, you know, we'd be stoned out of our minds and we'd go there and have dinner. And I remember got getting into a conversation with somebody who worked in the restaurant and somehow this idea about the police came up and, and the person said to me, if you walk around the North end, you'll notice there aren't a lot of police. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, we don't need them. You know, they police their own neighborhood. Right. And the second example is that our, uh, Two of our sons, the L.A. boys, the screenwriter and the actor, lived in a section of uh, in West Hollywood that was predominantly a, a Jewish community, and I'm going to say Orthodox 
because I think as I remember, um, they they were were orthodox in that they would follow the Sabbath and they would not use any electronic devices. So they would walk to, to temple. Mm. And at one point, uh, the story from some of the neighbors was that they had real problems with gang, gang activity where uh, members of the temple were, were being held up, mugged in essence. And so they formed their own kind of groups in the evenings and at night, and they go around with baseball bats, right? And and police their own neighborhood, uh, which apparently worked. Now the problem is here we're on this fine line between vigilantes and and community activists policing their neighborhood. There's there's a line there, right? Um, but it's possible to do it. You know, it can be done. Uh, I, I'm just I guess I'm just not at the point where I'm I'm willing to say. Let's let's abolish the police. Although I, I understand the impulse for that, and I understand given what you're looking at, the issue is compounded for me in the following way. You mentioned qualified immunity, which, as you say, pretty much lets police off the hook for for crimes that they're committing in the name of protection. Right. The issue isn't <clears throat> doesn't doesn't stop with the police. There are prosecutors, DAs, who won't bring cases against police officers. And if they do, there are judges who will not render sentences against people convicted and juries who won't convict. So you've got the whole justice system, top to bottom, that's implicated in this. So if we're talking about rooting out negative attitudes, leaving aside rooting out corruption, which we know is also rampant in, among police forces if we're, and among uh, law enforcement in general. Now we're talking about rooting out within prosecutors, judges, and trying to change the attitudes of juries. So uh, it's a long-term prospect. <laughs> and and uh, unfortunately, climate change will kill all of us before we can we can affect the the right kinds of reforms. Yes. Well, it, what you just pointed out speaks to I think the the fact that policing is but one tentacle of the monster that is the United States government writ large, right? Locally, federally, and at the state level, in that. You know the the justice system, so called, the the whole legal apparatus, the citizenry itself, et cetera, et cetera. They're all interconnected in this sort of kaleidoscope of white supremacy, and you know even if we were to abolish the police, although that's a big tentacle or maybe even a head, you know it's a hydra, and whatever whatever grows out of that entity that we call the United States government is it, it's just going to be meet the new boss, same as the old boss, in my view, which is why, you know, furthermore, I'm, I, I am of the opinion that the United States should be <laughs> overthrown through revolutionary movement. But, you know, um, oh, we'll we'll get on to that at some point. <clears throat> yeah, but I, also, I, don't, I don't mean we'll, I don't mean we'll get on to revolution at some point. I mean, we'll get on to the topic. 
yes at some point that's good you know and that's uh that's what gets me on these watch lists that i alluded to um but uh what did i want to say just maybe a final point on this policing thing um i you pointed out something that i think is important which is that policing and you mentioned this earlier but also just a minute ago which is that policing as it currently exists kind of fills the gaps where we might find, uh, you know, if there were more community solidarity, then neighbors could enforce in sub-lethal or sub-violent ways good behavior in their neighborhood, right? People know each other. People are friendly with each other. A boy steals from a shop instead of calling the cops and having him get shot, you know, he calls his father, whom he knows, and they have some kind of intervention and it's a, you know, everyone is happy, something like this. Uh, so the, the atomization in our society and the hyper individualism, I think, facilitates the, the, the filling of those gaps with violent policing. Do you get what I'm saying? And especially suspicion yeah. of, of between classes, between races, et cetera. So that, I think, that solving that problem uh, could go a long way towards tempering the problems in, the, in policing. Like, I, I keep thinking throughout this conversation, and this is something I've been meaning to mention for a while, uh, when I visited Cuba a few years ago, I spent a couple of weeks in Cuba when it was legal for U.S. citizens to go there, briefly. And it was a phenomenal, it was an incredible experience. Um, uh, to, to, to witness that culture firsthand. And especially for me as like a white American man whom you should expect all Cubans to despise, <laughs> right? I'm like the, the avatar of oppression for them, you know, in a, in a very concrete way. And, but they were extremely friendly to me personally, inquisitive, friendly, hospitable, but what I noticed above all else was the solidarity that they exhibited to among themselves, to everyone, to visitors as well, but especially in the Cuban community. And one example would be they have these, I, I don't remember the, the Cuban term for them, but they're just, we might call them homeless shelters, but they're more than that. They're more like hotels where you can just walk in and spend the night. So you, no one sleeps on the street. There is no homelessness. It's zero because there are always beds available for people, no, no questions asked. That to me is an example of how we can allocate resources through an expression of compassion and solidarity that just eliminates the policing aspect altogether. Now, the question becomes, well, what if there's drug use or violence or whatever in these hotels? Okay, that's a fair question and a fair point, and we'll have to think about ways to address that but I still don't think it requires armed policing. So that's just my sort of, that's one note that I wanted to offer as a, a path forward that could help us, help wean us off of this reliance on, on violent policing and instead focusing on you know, community support and solidarity and, and mutual aid. Yeah, I, well, I haven't, I haven't given up on on policing 
Yeah. I'm, so I'm, I'm not yet in the position where you are to abolish the police. Sure. But I am in the position of wanting to, to, to de-escalate. So if there was a way of making some transitional moves, for instance, if you have, I, I, I still think the beat cop out of the car, walking the street uh, is a way, is a, is a better way of policing mm. where they get to know the people in the community. Uh, I think that's, I think that's important. So I think the two things that I would do immediately would be the increased screening of people on currently on the force, uh, psychological screening of people on the force and people coming in more community policing with, with going back to the old beat cop walking the streets and, uh, and then if there was a way of, the, a, as a transition, you're not going to like the term that I'm about to use, where members of the community could be deputized in some way, where they would be officially recognized. Now, I, f- I feel creepy about saying this because now I feel as if I'm talking about, uh, about some sort of like Vichy government in France, <laughs> you know, collaborating with the Nazis. Right. And, snitches. Uh, yeah, Society yeah, of snitches. Yeah, I don't want it to have that that, that slimy, uh, unctuous feeling to it. But where they would be recognized by the police and by the members of the community as as almost like ombudsmen, mm-hmm. uh, where they can they can de-escalate because the, the police would be able to go to them and say, what's the story with this guy? Is this a bad guy? And it would also be somebody in the community that people could go to, not going to the police, some recognized official in the community. And maybe it's a, it's a council of elders, right? which I'd be all for, by the way. So I'm not <laughs> off on the ice flow with the rest of the old people. But it's a, some, maybe it's a, a, a council of elders, almost in the tradition of Native Americans who mm. have their wisdom councils, right? Where they are attempting to, when there is rampant drug use or there is petty violence or severe violence in the, in among the native American community, they will convene a council, a wisdom council that will con- consist of different members of the community and the, the miscreants, right? And the idea is to try to rehabilitate them, right? right. If there is some form of, of uh, restitution that can be paid, they can do that. And that's another area we haven't gotten into, the different kinds of, of uh, justice reforms, moving off a punitive uh, justice towards something, some kind of restorative justice or, or, uh, or restitutive, 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 I'm gonna say restitutive Not retributive, I don't want it to be retributive, retribution. Right. I want it to be a form of restitution and a form of rehabilitation. Yeah. yeah. Which at one point, and I think Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California when this happened. I think they took out of the, the penal code in, in California any reference to rehabilitation. I may <laughs> well, be wrong being about honest. that. But, but yeah, this is what prisons are for. So that's another issue. That's a whole uh, different topic about, yes. about forms of new forms of justice. But anyway, so I'm, I'm looking for that compromise, the transitional movement away from reliance upon the police, but not yet abandoning or abolishing the police, trying to figure out new ways that they can serve, protect and serve the community without doing greater harm to the community. Mm. 
uh, something like that. Yeah. But again, I have no evidence. I'm just talking. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, I mean, and I should mention, I guess the sort of generic socialist critique of policing is that they, they exist to, you know, protect the property of the bourgeoisie, right? They're, they're the enforcers of capital and everything else is secondary at best. So from that point of view, for me, at least, that's another angle from which I sort of, um, you know, that's how I approach this idea of abolishing the police, because I think that they, it's, it's, it, they're institutionally, it's intrinsically tied up with capital and the protection of the capital capitalist class. So an, an obvious example of this is like, how many cops did you see arresting, you know, the thieves that uh, on Wall Street that caused the financial crash and or the ex executives at Exxon, et cetera. These folks are, are ne almost never punished. I just saw Bernie Madoff died in jail, age 82 or whatever. Why did he go to jail? Because he stole from rich people, you know, <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, that's my, that's my, but that you see, but that ties into a previous part of our conversation. Abolishing hmm. the police is not going to abolish the criminal justice system. It's not going to abolish the, uh, the problems we have with the, uh, DAs and assistant DAs and sure. judges. I mean, this, this is, the, it's the whole, it's the whole hierarchy. It's the whole system. That's a yeah. problem. I think I think it can be reformed. You you think it needs to be abolished and and I don't know. I was going to say it, we start over, but I don't know if you have in mind what a plan would look like. But the socialist critique, for me, relies too much on thinking about the economic system and putting that in, in the pride of place. Mm. So if you look at uh, I guess you'd say what system around the world today is not beholden to capitalism in some way. And maybe you'd point to Cuba. Or maybe I, you'd point. I think I, I, don't I, would, I would point to Cuba as the best example of actually existing communism or socialism, which is not to say that it's without flaws. Um, but it, but in my view, it's the best we've got currently. And, it, and even perhaps historically, perhaps, perhaps superior to the Soviet Union, even at its best, I think. Okay. Well, we know that Cuba is not without police. No. Uh, we know that those police are, have been used to crack down on dissidents, to crack down on homosexuals. Yep. We know that they have been then used the justice system to prosecute and persecute groups like that, dissidents and homosexuals. So there's something, there's a problem in the social order, in any social order. The question yeah. is what, okay, so. I agree on one with hand, that. You I, might, yeah. yeah, so the, the question then, the great question then is, well, there, there are two questions. The, <laughs> one big, one small. Uh, the smaller question is, is the Cuban system better in that the negative effects of their structures wear less on the Cuban population? And then, of course, the answer is it depends upon who you are in the Cuban population. If you're a dissident and you're gay, mm. no, it's, it's horrible. Okay, so 
that leads them to the big question, which is how do you reorganize social orders to reflect human flourishing mm. for all the members of your society, uh, regardless of station? And maybe you don't even have stations, but that's a different question. Uh, <laughs> so I don't. So I don't know that there is there is no social system in the world currently or in the past that has not had some kind of issue with reinforcing a particular view of social order, of establishing order. Uh, Violent. I don't know where that leaves us. Where does that leave us? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it leaves us with the, you know, the keen recognition that humans are imperfect and we got a long way to go in implementing anything approaching the ideals that we've been discussing, right? So, I mean, that's why I say, um, actually existing socialism or communism when I'm describing a place like Cuba because it it's what it's what we have in reality but it's it's a far cry from what I would like to see based on the theory right so although I think they they do get a lot right they still have a long way to go including at least the historical oppression of homosexuals I'm not sure how prevalent that still still is, although certainly it was a major problem, um, I think, in maybe the 60s and 70s. But regardless, and later, and later, later than that. Yeah. OK, for, I, for not, sure, toward the end of, of Fidel Castro's rule, and it was going on completely under Castro. Yeah, maybe when he died and Raul Castro took over, things were different. I don't know, but it was it was prevalent and, and longstanding. Yeah, and that's that should be condemned just as we condemn all humans right human rights violations under all regimes everywhere at all times, right? But uh, yeah, so how do we how would we create a system that centers human flourishing? Well, I mean, one thing for me is the hierarchy. Hierarchy is at the heart of these problems because hierarchy for me is inherently authoritarian. Um, almost in all cases, we meant we discussed briefly before about how there can be legitimate or justified hierarchies. And of course, in there are biological hierarchies, which are natural and normal. Um, but I mean, social hierarchies um, that are asserted rather than democratically decided upon. Um, that for me is what drives the flaws in, in basically all systems of social organization. But I, I wanted to mention or introduce this idea or concept to you, uh, which I find compelling because there is a tendency when we're having these kinds of discussions to say, well, where has it worked or point to an example of a society that has done X, Y, Z, et cetera. And, and those are fair questions uh, and concerns to have. But I find compelling this concept or notion of the, the temporary autonomous zone or the TAZ. Have you ever heard of this? You're familiar with this? No. No? So, ah, my cat has arrived. Hi. Cousseau. <laughs> um, comment so, ça va? Some, comment ça va? <laughs> Cousseau, comment ça va? Meow, meow. <laughs> um, yeah. The, so... It's just this idea, which was put forth by a guy named Hakim Bey, who's an anarchist theorist. Um, and it's that the, um, 
sort of anarchist situations can arise spontaneously in various places. And I think an example he gives, or if not an example I'm going to give, is a subway car, a New York City subway car. Okay, here's a, a room where strangers enter into, and for some period of time, they're, you know, they exist in what we could think of as a, almost a state of nature, right? There's no expectation of um, a, an authority figure being present. You're closed off in this little bubble with a few other people, again, who are most likely all strangers. And yet we don't see, uh, you know, complete chaos and murder and mayhem in these scenarios. Well, why is that the case? And, and so that kind of just points to this concept where you can have these temporary autonomous zones. And for me, like that's what I seek to embody and bring into practice and existence wherever I go, because I hold these values and I live a certain way and I conduct myself in a, in a certain manner in a in, a, in an attempt to be in accordance with those values, democratic, anarchist, socialist, communist values, et cetera. And I try to, I try to create those zones wherever I go, including in the classroom, for example. So what do you make of that? Do you think that that's like a fruitful concept? Do you see how it could apply to say a classroom or a subway car in the sense that I'm suggesting? No. <laughs> I, Why the I fuck don't. not, Jack? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've heard enough. I don't know that I, I've heard enough about that. If you, if you think of a subway car or a classroom, there are uh, social norms that supersede immediate behaviors. People come in there understanding that there is a setting here that has inscribed a, a, some set of social norms. Now, some people will violate those, but by and large, people don't. They understand what the norms are. They're enter, entering it voluntarily. Uh, and they, they are there for a, probably a single purpose, right? In the case of the subway car, it's to get somewhere. In the case of the classroom, it's to learn something. Hmm. and their norms of behavior that people have adapted. But that's because it seems to me there is some uh, overarching uh, social view at work here. For me, the issue would be what happens if there's an emergency within the subway car? Hmm. I think very quickly there would be some people who would step up with some ideas and the people in the car would accept some, reject some, depending on the level of panic involved. The, the notion that there is a democratic hierarchy, uh, I think, works in part in that situation. Uh, unless somebody says, you know, steps up and says, I'm a firefighter and an ETM, and I, here's what we need to do. People are going to then defer to that authority not because there's some authoritarian notion in this person, uh, but because there's a, there's a recognized level of authority, of expertise. Okay, so the same thing in the classroom, the professor teacher walks in and there is an expectation there that you're there 
for some purpose, this is the, the authority figure who is going to give you the thing you need. So if the train, if the subway breaks down and, and a subway worker comes on and opens the door and says, here's what's happening. Here's what you need to do. You need to evacuate the car. People will evacuate the car. They will defer to authority. Mm. So there, there are these, these things going on. So I don't know why, I don't know where it gets us to say that these are temporary autonomous zones. I don't know what that gets us. I guess that's what I'm asking you. I think, well, I think it's that they can be, not necessarily that they automatically and sort of permanently are. It's that there's an opportunity created by this somewhat unique, but very temporary social circumstance for uh, different ways of relating or, uh, or being to spontaneously emerge. Uh, and so it's like, well, let me, I wanted to, you mentioned expertise. And for me, maybe that grants someone something like uh, something resembling authority but it's really not authority, I, I would argue. It's just a recognition of their expertise. Like, oh, this person's a medical doctor. This individual is having a heart attack. Of course, this is the person who should be attending to them and sort of making, you know, the primary decision maker for how to care for them. I, I don't view that as authority so much as just expertise. Although those things can be interconnected in a legitimate or justified way, I think. But I guess you mentioned like the professor in the classroom. And for me, because this is also like, this is central to how I try to operate in the classroom myself when I'm in the position of teacher is to subvert that authority at every turn. And for me, I take as my model here, Socrates. Socrates, here's an individual who just uh, very sort of demonstrably is expert and extremely knowledgeable on matters relating to moral uh, philosophy, political philosophy, et cetera, and yet constantly poses as ignorant or um, as sort of not being an authority, always subverting his own position, and yet paradoxically using that self-subversion to buttress his perceived expertise by his interlocutors. I think maybe you won't, maybe you won't accept that description that I'm giving, but that's for me is like a paradigmatic example of, of how, how best to wield authority, which is to say not to wield it at all. Socrates, as you point out, is doing everything he can to not be authoritative because he finds but at the same time he is exercising his expertise as mm. you pointed out uh should any of his interlocutors step forward and pretend to be an authority let's say thrasymachus <laughs> Socrates will have answers for him uh, in his own Socratic way. But I think you're right. Socrates is constantly trying to prevent his interlocutors from looking at him as an authority on some issue. 
But that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is the social norms that are created around the subway car and the classroom mm-hmm. where people are looked to as authority figures. I'm not saying that they legitimately have it, but they are, because of the population they're involved with, they're imbued with it. Mm. So if something happens in the classroom that's disruptive, if you fail to act, you would be not just jeopardizing your authority, you would be ignoring your authority. You might say, okay, these two students are going at it. I can see this is going to escalate. This is going to be bad. People are getting uneasy. Some people are beginning to panic. I'm the professor, but I'm going to subvert my own authority by doing nothing and letting Mm. them sort this out democratically. That would be an abandonment of your authority, which you might want to do, but the result could be uh, damaging for others. So, so I come back to this, I think that's a larger issue, which is we're now addressing the social norms involved, the social values within the social order. And the question is whether, at what point, at, at what points is authority to be subverted? And at what points is authority to be exercised? Mm. And, but that requires somebody to do what you're doing, which is step back from the acknowledgement of authority and say, here are the circumstances under which I will not act authoritatively. On the other hand, there are circumstances which would arise in which you may see yourself being required to act authoritatively. Uh, But for me, it comes back again to the the social norms and the social order, Mm. uh, which is, I think, a a bigger concern for me. Yes. Uh, but it also comes back to the kinds of people <laughs> who are attracted <laughs> to positions of authority and who want to act on those. So, yes, we can fault the police for attracting a certain kind of person who wants to be close to, if not involved in, the uh, le- the legitimate use of violence which they then take beyond uh, legitimacy. Likewise, we know people who are attracted to the professoriate because they're attracted to being authoritative, if not crossing that line into authoritarianism. We know people who run classrooms that way, who want to run classrooms that way, and then will attempt to rationalize their behavior as some... uh, for some pedagogical reason, right? They'll give you some <laughs> right. bullshit. But it's the same issue, it seems to me, that we're there are people who are, for psychological reasons, are attracted to the, the corruption of the very norms that they're supposed to be reinforcing. I mean, I can't mm. imagine somebody saying to you, maybe they have, Rory, you're too Socratic. Maybe that happened when you were at Great Hearts. People said, no, you're too Socratic. What are you doing? That's not how you run a seminar. Yeah. You don't, you tell them what to think. 
I, I know people who think that way in the professoriate right now. That's I, their job. I have. I certainly, I mean, you and I discussed at the time certain uh, observational reviews that I received when I was teaching at Scottsdale Prep, and, uh, and they were definitely uh, misunderstanding what, what I was doing and what, what was going on in the classroom, because in my view, uh, they, certainly the individual who was observing and reviewing me uh, was deeply authoritarian himself. And I, I would venture to guess that if there were some study done of the psychological profiles of most cops and most teachers, they would be very similar. Um, I don't know if I would extend that to the professoriate or not, uh, maybe to a slightly lesser degree, but probably not much difference uh, because I really do think, uh, you know, there's maybe a kinder, gentler machine gun hand, you know, as Neil Young might say, uh, with a teacher, but that impulse to tyranny and, and control, the, the, the classroom yeah. as the domain, right, for the exercise of yeah. authority is the same, in my you, view. You, you said it uh, earlier in the conversation when you were talking about the, the army lieutenant uh, stopped at the gas station. Yep. Uh, it's, the same, it's the same commandment that runs through the teacher as it runs through the cop. Obey, obey, obey. Right. Teacher wants to be obeyed. You know what a good classroom is? A classroom that's obedient. <laughs> right. The students are obedient. Because I mean, the teacher think, says so. Yeah, we know there are teachers who think that way. Absolutely. If they're Most quiet and they're doing their life. Yeah. It, so again, it comes back. It, it's, this, it's this ongoing interaction between the environment and the organism. We keep coming back to that because I think it's so crucial. The school you, you taught in where your supervisor was not just permitted to be authoritarian, but was promoted in his authoritarianism. Right that person is being rewarded for that kind of behavior, right? It's the structure of that school, but that doesn't then, then mean it's the structure of all schools. And I guess I'm the same sure. way with the police, the police forces. Not every police force shows this idea about the, uh, the authoritarian strain within them. So we have a perfect example in Minnesota where we've now seen in the, in the Derek Chauvin trial, where the blue line was crossed, where mm -hmm. cops were saying this was this was excessive, this was not necessary, he went over the line. This is bad policing. Okay, that that I think might be a breakthrough. But I want to apply just going back to what we were talking about much earlier. I want to apply the same psychological profiles to teachers mm -hmm. as I do to cops. And moreover, I want to pay teachers. I think teachers are grossly underpaid. I want to pay them as well you know, elevate, I mean, elevate the profession, both professions, right? So that you, you attract people who understand the values that want to be not just inculcated, but disseminated within the society. Uh, in, in both of those instances, anyway, this has taken us way off. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's good. Temporary <laughs> autonomous zones, which I still don't understand. Wow. And if, if I wanted to, I would, I would read more about them. The, the what was the, the source you gave? Uh, his name is Hakeem Bey. That's the pen name. I forget his real name. And he, I think he's like problematic. Oh, well, fuck that guy. 
Yeah, yeah fuck that guy. If he won't step up and give his real name, fuck him. I'm not reading anything. No, I've he... said all kinds of crazy shit and written crazy shit. And I don't use a pen name. It was although... more, he's, he's known by his real name too. He doesn't hide. In other words, it's not anonymous, but I think it's more like he has a, either a persona or he changed his identity, changed his name. He's like in a psychedelic guy, you know, whatever. Oh, um, all right. So yeah, he, you would, I think, find him interesting. Although I seem to recall that he has some problematic behavior in his personal life. Uh, just mentioning that. So I don't get extra canceled. I'm not endorsing whatever it was that he did that was wrong, but, but you, yeah, I'm, some... I'm pretty forgiving. I'm pretty forgiving there with, with what people do in their personal lives. Yes. I think you have to be. And especially if you want to, you know, deal with artists and philosophers who are uniformly pieces of shit, but uh, in my view, <laughs> but, and I include myself. I hope we in... get, I hope we get to that topic as well. <laughs> well, Okay, but we can come back to that another time. But there were several threads that I wanted to connect and, you know, tie together as we start tapering off here. Um, the yeah, first of all, the deprofessionalization of these occupations is is a crucial point that you know you've mentioned a couple of times, and I completely agree. If you want good people in these roles, you have to pay them at least commensurate with what they could make in the private sector. You know, like, so I, when I started teaching high school, I had just finished my master's degree and, you know, I was making peanuts and it's just, I could have gone into any generic, I could have been an insurance salesman and made, you know, quadruple or whatever I was getting paid to teach. So that's, I think an important point, but also I wanted to just sort of dig into a little bit, like, you had given this example of the professor who in an attempt to subvert his own authority and to be consistent in that subversion does not intervene in some sort of conflict that is emerging amongst his students. And I would say that that's not, I, that's not what I would do. And that's not what I am saying that a subversion of one's own authority would entail. Rather, I would just recast it. It gets recast for me. So I have, I have responsibility still. I have like moral responsibility to uh, reduce or eliminate or prevent violence among my comrades, right? And so I would intervene from that angle, not necessarily calling upon my authority, although I may have to, and I may instrumentally do that given the real world circumstances in which we exist. But I would seek for the social situation in the classroom to be one such that, I, that any individual could intervene from a place of moral responsibility, not just me, although I would. And in, and in doing that, I would set an example, hopefully for others uh, to be emulated. And then, so that, for, that then connects with something else I was thinking about, which is sort of the deconstruction of my own authority. Um, the deconstruction of my own authority by virtue of the role which I occupy, right? I'm the teacher, I'm the professor. So I come into the room with that. I already have that authority. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to whatever. It's my title. It's, my, it's the roles. It's what the role is or entails in a certain extent. But you can deconstruct that and 
and distribute it, in my view, throughout the classroom, through the creation of, of classroom norms, right? And I learned a lot about this from some of your work, I think, in Beyond Individualism, maybe Democracy's Midwife too, but this, con this concept that you often discuss of mirroring, right? The so psychological um, power of mirroring. And so if I enact and put into practice certain values like, like respect, reciprocity, compassion, et cetera, and although I'm not necessarily drawing on my authority when I in, intentionally in doing that, certainly students who come into the classroom viewing me as an authority figure are receiving it at least partially as an expression of my authority, even though it's not from my end. That I think can help to create a, a real sense of community and a sense of shared values that takes the place of the, the individual's authority, right? So now the community has authority, quote unquote, in their, the existence of these shared values and norms, which are reciprocated and um, sort of enacted and evidenced by me, the authority, the quote unquote authority figure. Do you get what I'm saying? So I'm deconstructing and offloading my authority to the community through yeah. these values. Hey, Kat. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I accept that. I understand that and, and accept that, but it rests on your authority. At first. You, you, yes, but that, that, but that was my point. You, you enter with the authority. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Now, there are people who want to earn their, their authority and they do it through displays of expertise, which they think is the basis of their authority as a professor. But you are perfectly within your authority to, to bestow authority on others. But it's only because you have authority to do it. Yes. So, yeah. So I'm with you on this idea about disseminating authority or even in, in, at the expense of dissipating your own. I under, yeah. So I'm with you on that. Uh, but at some point, if the, if the dispensation of authority and the creation of the democratic norms within your, within your classroom collapse, it's going to revert to you. Right. Things yes. fall apart. You have, to, you have to fix them. You have to do something or, in, in other words, you're running an experiment. You've given authority to students. They are sharing in this, these democratic values within the classroom. Something goes haywire. The system isn't working. It's fallen apart. All of that authority will now redound to you once again. Sure. But again, it's because, because you can do it from your position of authority. Uh, so I don't think we're arguing uh, at all. I'm just saying the, the classroom is not a community. The classroom is not a democracy. You can make it one, but it doesn't start that way. Right. Nobody entering that classroom, even if they know you, thinks that somehow you are on an equal level with them in any kind of power structure. 
they recognize that that's not equal. You can do everything to give them authority and by taking away some of your own. I, uh, so I, I'm with you on that. But it's just, it's what, I, what I'm talking about is the creation of the, the, the prior creation of the norms that exist within the subway car and the classroom, which you are then subverting and turning over because you recognize that this environment isn't working the way you think it needs to work. And you're recognizing that because of your authority, <laughs> which, which for me here, authority and expertise uh, are, are co-equal, if not synonymous. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know where we are in this. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I know we're, we're just about out of time, but I want to just yeah. uh, respond to those comments and maybe we can pick up there as well next time. But okay. uh, yes, so I, I agree with everything you say, uh, including that in a crisis or emergency situation, the uh, environment, social environment that I have worked to establish in the classroom is likely to fall away and uh, revert to a conventional, you know, I'm the teacher, I'm in charge, I'm the authority, uh, listen to me, et cetera. But for me, that's not a problem. Uh, that's to be expected because I, I recognize that the, the sort of project of creating the social situation that I just described is indeed a creative project. Like it's an endeavor that is uh, ephemeral, right? And elusive and prone to decay. But, but that in and of itself is what makes it so valuable because it can be for a few moments at least something different. And the extent to which you can maintain that over time, and this, is, this was one thing that I like about teaching high school versus teaching college, which is that you see them every day or almost every day, it's more consistent, et cetera, et cetera, is that you can cultivate habits and attitudes and uh, it gets easier to sort of drop the needle into that groove, right? The students just came from, you know, Mr. Dickhead's class and now they're coming to my class and they have to, uh, it's like entering a new realm, right? And the adjustment period, if we want to think about it as coming in and out of the cave, their eyes adjust more, more and more quickly over time. So I'm just putting it out there that that is, for me, that is the educational project sort of par excellence that I seek to engage in, uh, that's my hidden curriculum, you know, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're in agreement on that. I think the only place where we disagree is, well, actually, it, that it's really about the sources of authority, not, not exercises of authority. Uh, and I'm not sure that's very interesting. Uh, at this point, but I'm, I'm with you on the subversion of authority, particularly yeah, I, for, for, I learned a, a lot of it from you in the role of teacher. Yeah. But I never, I never thought it was because, okay. So maybe what's, what's 
what is hanging me up is the use of authority. Uh, and you're wanting to differentiate it from expertise. So expertise you recognize is a, it can be a source of authority, right? Yeah. Legitimate authority. Yeah. Uh, so we're in agreement there. And then you're, Yeah, I'm not sure where I want to go with this at this point. <laughs> well, we can I mean, I we can come back to it, start here next time, because I think it's a fruitful topic that may spiral out for us. Well, yeah, and I think at some point we have to we have to talk about the distinction between authority and authoritarianism, which I think is worth worth uh, looking into, because it's not just the the extensive use of authority in some social political, cultural arena, but it's not that, it's something quite different. But the fact that, that they have this root uh, in authorship, I think is worth thinking about. Mm. But you know, well, you're know, you you're exercising, that. all I was saying is you're exercising your authority in subverting your authority. That's, that's all I was saying. If you mm. didn't have the authority, you couldn't do it. But sure. if you had to report to the dean, if you had to submit your curriculum and your classroom structure to the dean, then you don't have the authority to do what you're doing, right? You have to report to a different authority. Now, now we're getting into a different, a different realm. But yeah, so I was just saying it's it's a recognition of your authority that you want to subvert uh, your own authority, yes. which I'm all for. Which I'm all yeah. for. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's really the only thing one can do uh, with authority is subvert it, right? Like hearkening back well, to what. I was saying with Plato, no. no, the only thing one should do, can't, like in the, uh, that I approve of. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of that either. I, I think one can't exercise authority. I don't know that that every exercise of authority, other than the exercise of authority to subvert your authority, is necessarily illegitimate. Okay. Yes, that's fair. I, I'm 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 saying I'm stating that too strongly when I say the only thing, but but I was thinking of this idea. Uh, that I referenced earlier from Plato, that the only, that the, those who most want to rule are least fit to rule. In other words, for me, if you're coming into a position of authority and you're not at least in some significant sense working to undermine your own authority, then you're doing something wrong. You're, you're likely to be headed down the wrong path in broad strokes. Not that there's never, yeah. you can never exercise yeah. your authority. Yeah. But for me, it depends on what the goal is you're trying to accomplish, right? So to subvert your, so it sounds as if you're saying you want to subvert your authority regardless of the circumstances. That's your goal. The goal isn't, isn't external. The goal is to subvert your authority. That's your goal. Uh, but but it okay, seems to yeah. me there must be a greater purpose in doing it than just the subversion of authority. Why are you doing that? Ah, okay. Yeah, that there is, I think. Uh, but I think it would get yeah, into- I think so too. I'm sure there is for you. And, I, and I, have, I have certain reasons as well, but I think that's a perfect place for us to pick up next time because I, I want to connect this with your idea of the, that you brought up before of the beneficent despot that's been squ swimming around in my head for the past two weeks, so- that's good. That's good. Keep feeding that fish swimming in your head. <laughs> Will do. Perfect. All right. Rory, be well. Likewise.
See ya. <laughs> Audio. <laughs> Is that why we are we have some finishing touches here that I don't no. know about something we should be saying? No, we don't have a sign off yet. Well, you have a, you have been well, saying, mine is rock, rock the steep path. That's what there I say you to you all the time. Yes, yeah. I need to uh, come up with a uh, appropriate rejoinder, maybe one step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's right. <laughs> one stumble at a time. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, I'll see you next time. All right, we'll do. Take care. Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes.